As folks are transitioning and the children are heading out, I invite you to find Genesis chapter 6 in your Bible, or the Bible in the pew in front of you. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start in verses 9 through 12. Before we read God's Word and receive it together, we need His help. And just briefly, if we could pray together once again, I know I need His help to serve you well, and we all need His help to genuinely receive and be transformed by His Word. So let's, let's talk to God about that together. Father, as best we can, we, we want to approach these moments together with our Bibles open in light of the glorious realities present here. This is your word, breathed out through your human messengers. It's your word, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, profitable for all the spiritual things we need. And I pray that you would help us receive it like that. Unlike any other word that we have read or heard this week, this is your word. So we humbly come to you. We ask that you would help us, give us ears that hear and eyes that see and soft, receptive, pliable hearts. That you would help me not to obscure any of the truth of it or the power of it through my presentation of it. And as we move toward the communion table, be searching our hearts and Revealing to us any sin, any issues we need to confess before you and repent of so that we can take the cup and the bread with clear consciences before you, pure hearts. So we look to you for all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So the sermon this Sunday will be a little different because I really want the focus to be on the Lord's table this Sunday. I I think it's important anytime we partake of the the bread and cup together. Uh, It feels especially important this week just because it's been so long since we've done this. And uh, I really want the spotlight to remain on on the the symbol and the power of what this represents. So we're working our way through Genesis. We're not going to stay in Genesis very long this morning. We're going to sort of just use this as a starting point to look forward into the New Testament at, at a couple of passages that will help us, again, uh, be reminded and wrap our minds around just how wonderful the gospel is. Uh, I know many of you have all variety of things going on in your lives, different things on your minds. Um, it, It can, the gospel, what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross can begin to feel removed or, or, um, it, it can feel like it's up here in the clouds, whereas we're down here in the real world dealing with urgent matters of today and tomorrow, but there is nothing more important for us to be thinking about this morning. And that's part of what a regular rhythm of communion or partaking of the Lord's Supper does for us. So we are, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 6, continuing the story of Noah that we've been looking at for a couple of weeks. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. And the main thing I want to point out to you in these verses this week is the contrast. You're going to see a contrast in these verses between Noah and the rest of the world. Let's read them together. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You see the contrast between Noah and everybody else? Everybody else in the whole earth. So Noah is characterized by three things. We see him there in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man. He was righteous. That means, biblically, in that language, it means innocent, just. Uh, there, was, there was no uh, crimes in his life, nothing unrighteous, nothing unjust. He was innocent. Blameless in his generation, that's the second. He was righteous, and he was blameless. That word blameless is, is really the idea of wholeness and completeness, and it means that he was entirely without blemish before God. Spiritually and morally, he was blameless. It's the same word used for uh, animal sacrifices in the ancient Israel religious system. They had to bring animal sacrifices, and they were to be without blemish. That's the same word used here of Noah. He was without blemish, blameless. Righteous, blameless. And then the third thing you see, Noah walked with God. Righteous, blameless, and walking with God. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. To walk with God, walk with in the Bible always has to do with the way of life of an individual, the lifestyle. So Noah walking with God means that his way of life was characterized by an ongoing, active relationship with God. It wasn't just that he was a goody-two-shoes guy who never did anything wrong and always dotted all of his I's and crossed all of his T's morally. He was close to God. And anybody that looked at his way of life would say, the main thing I can say about Noah is he knows God. He lives in relationship with him. So there's Noah. And then what did we see about the earth or the world, the other people? In verse 11, see if you can pick out a key word here. We'll read it again. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Did you pick out a key word? Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. God's wanting us to see this contrast before he gets into the the epic story of the flood too deep. Here's Noah, righteous, blameless, walking with God, and then here's everybody else. Corrupt, corrupt, and corrupt. That word corrupt means, uh, it it has a range of meanings, but it carries the idea of decay, of ruin, of the earth having been destroyed by decay and ruin. You know, God created everything and it was good, and then he created man and woman, it was very good. But when sin entered the world, it was as if this wasting disease had entered into humanity. And so all but this small remnant Noah, and then those redeemed through relationship to him, his family, was corrupt, decayed, ruined, destroyed in terms of moral and spiritual realities. You can picture it like a, a, a garbage heap or a landfill. Morally and spiritually, the world had become like a landfill. And then in Noah, there's this one flower blooming in the midst of it. He stands out in such stark contrast. Now, worldwide corruption is not new. That's one thing we get from this ancient book of Genesis. 
We talked about it last week, but you look at the news and it can feel like things have never been like this before. What is going on? Did you see the, we watched most of the Panthers game that happened. Did you see on the news the Panthers fan that just beat senseless another Panthers fan? Uh, Did you guys see this? I hope, don't go looking for it because it's a pretty violent video. But there in the stands at a Panthers game, it's just a football game. It's just a bunch of guys running a ball down a field. But things got so heated up in the stands that this one younger guy beat senseless an older guy. It was some argument. The older guy was behind the younger guy, and he was a little upset because the younger guy and his girlfriend were standing up the whole game. And he couldn't see, and there were words exchanged. At some point, this younger guy just wailed on this older guy, punching him in the face. It was a terrible, horrific thing to see on the news. And you see that, and you're like, what is going on? You see that in relation to the Las Vegas shooting. You see it in relation to the other things going on around the world. And you can easily think, okay, we're in uncharted territories of awful here. But it's just not true. Anywhere there's been people historically, there's been violence and corruption. It's old news. Now, what is new is the way God is dealing with it now. Here, Genesis chapter 6, you who know the story know that he's about to flood the entire earth and just wipe it clean, get a fresh start with just Noah. But we in the new covenant enjoy something different than that. And now we're going to move into the New Testament. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 9. And I just have a couple of scriptures I'd like to read to you before we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 9, we'll read verses 10 through 13. All through the Old Testament, God is pointing ahead to a Messiah, a Messiah, a Messiah, a Redeemer to come. Jesus Christ, the one that would bring a new covenant, a new way of God dealing with sin in the world. And we get a glimpse at it here as Jesus is in his earthly ministry. This is when he walked the earth. It says in Matthew 9, beginning at verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors were the scum of the earth to them culturally. They were most likely Jews that turned on their fellow man out of greed, betrayed their fellow Jews out of greed, and were extorting people, and and they were corrupt. But when he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here, way back in Genesis 6, we see God say to Noah, everybody's corrupt, you alone have my favor. You alone stand out as righteous and blameless, and you walk with me. So I'm going to pull you, the righteous one, out of all this corruption. And I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Here with Jesus Christ, we receive something much better. God looks down at the world, which is full of corruption. Romans 8 says that we're all born into it. You were all born into this corrupted state. And instead of pulling out a righteous person, he sends in a righteous person. He sends in righteous Jesus Christ into the corruption, to the corrupted, to those who are corrupting, 
so that they may be saved. Like a doctor going in to a sick village, he goes to the sick people and not those who are well. So with Jesus Christ, we have something new, something that has been promised for a long time through Scripture. He's not pulling out the righteous out of the corruption. He's sending in the righteous into corruption. Now let's go to John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. John chapter 3, 16 is very famous. You probably could quote it, but I wonder if you remember John chapter 3, verse 17, the verse that comes right after. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the religious Jews could not understand why Jesus was hanging out with sinful people, corrupt people. What they didn't see is that this was all part of God's plan to redeem those corrupt and sinful people. He sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now let's move forward to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us so that we could be reconciled to him and saved. We have to return to these truths often because especially in a still somewhat, although less so, I think even than when I became, first became your pastor, we still live in a churchy culture. And it's easy to think that the morally and spiritually upright people go to church and hang out. But that's not what church is. Church is the gathering of weak and ungodly sinful people to Jesus Christ to find mercy and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Now, out of that forgiveness and grace and mercy will grow naturally changed hearts and changed behaviors. And Lord willing, we should be becoming more righteous and blameless and walking closer with God. But it all starts with Jesus Christ's death on the cross for us. That leads our final passage, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And this is where we'll land the plane and receive communion together. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. And you, Paul writing to a group of Christians, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy 
and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We've read a lot of scripture, and I hope that your mind hasn't started to grow numb toward it. But let's, let's do receive these verses together. Did you see the, the transformation that takes place when somebody receives Jesus' death on their behalf, trusts in Jesus as their Savior, follows Jesus as their Lord? There's a, there's a transition that happens, a transformation. People who were once alienated from God, far from him, with no relationship to him, hostile in mind, actually set against him, doing evil deeds, doing things that are not righteous, and blameless. Jesus reconciles in his body of flesh by his death. And then, through that, through what's represented here, he's able to present sinners like us to God the Father as holy and blameless and above reproach. Holy and blameless and above reproach. In Jesus Christ, because of what he's done, that's who we are now. As corrupt as we may have been in our past and as much corruption still may be lingering in us, we now, through Jesus Christ, are presented to God the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. And how did he do it? Did he do it through a, uh, a moral training program? Did you enroll in some sort of a moral spiritual boot camp where you learned a bunch of disciplines and you cleaned yourself up and you made yourself better? You made yourself righteous and blameless? No, he did it in his body of flesh by his death. He reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. It's so easy to, it's so easy to allow our Christianity to slip into just ideology, to slip into just ideas and notions and forget the, the physical, historical realities of what this is. Jesus Christ really lived, a a real man in history really lived perfectly without sin, and he really died on a Roman cross. And we understand why he died was in payment for our sins. And we understand that he arose from the grave. He was dead, and then he came back to life. As bizarre as that is, it's a historical fact. And it proved everything he said about himself and who he was. And so we're here to trust in him. We're here to center our lives around him. See, communion done regularly, and some some traditions believe you should do it every time the church gathers, weekly. And I'm sympathetic to that view, honestly. Because it is so vital that we stay centered on this. This is who we are. We are redeemed and reconciled people, thanks to what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. If we could stay centered on that, how humble we would be, how gracious we would be, how loving we would be, how clear-sighted we would be. Regular communion ensures that the beginning of verse 23 happens. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. 
I had a friend back in high school. You know, when you first get your license, you want to drive any chance you get. You want to drive. And we were all getting our licenses, and so we all wanted to drive. And so we would, if we were going someplace, sometimes we would just all drive. Instead of one person driving and everybody riding in one car, that was back when gas was somewhat affordable, too. We would just all drive. We would all be in our individual cars going somewhere. And I remember whenever I was behind this one particular friend, I would watch him, and he would just be, like, swerving all over the road. I don't know why he drove like that. Maybe he still does. That was before we all had cell phones. I don't know what he was doing in there. You know, now you see people driving all crazy through the road, overlapping into your lane as they're coming at you at 70 miles per hour into the ditch, and you just assume, well, they're looking at their cell phone because that's what I'm doing. You do that, you, you know you're not supposed to text while you drive, and you're not. Don't do it, but you hear the notification, you just got to glance at it. There's some time sensitive going on, maybe. Probably not. Probably just we lack self-discipline, but you glance at it. Now, the longer you keep your eyes off the road, the more dangerous it is. The more dangerous it is for you, for everybody around you, for the mailboxes so carefully planted in the ground beside the road. You have to look up. Ideally, we would keep focused on the road. But at the very least, we need to look up regularly. Communion for us spiritually is, is, is looking up. You know, we live our lives and we get distracted by this and that and everything else. And we can easily, even as Christians, take our eyes off the road to such a degree that we make shipwreck of our lives. We start to build our hopes on other things other than God and his love for us through Jesus Christ. We start to make foolish decisions based on worldly thinking rather than the thinking that is ours now with our new minds through Jesus Christ. So Jesus, before he left, he gave us this regular practice. Keep centering yourselves on this. Keep looking at the road. Stay, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And so as we gather around this table, which we're going to do right now, we're looking back at the road, we're recentering our lives on this. Perhaps your life has become centered upon something else lately. Perhaps your life has, has begun to orbit around something other than the fact that you are reconciled to God himself through Jesus Christ. Let this bring us all together back centered upon this good news of what God has done for us through Jesus. Now, you don't have to be a member of Doolin's Grove Church to receive the elements of communion, but you do need to be a believer. You do need to be a Christian. And so we're all clear that doesn't just mean someone who uh, is affiliated with church or is a church member even of our church. That means you're someone who trusts in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you're someone who follows Jesus Christ as your Lord. So if that's you, I invite you to partake of these elements. Now, if you have some sin in your life, some ongoing unrepentant sin that you need to deal with, maybe it involves other people that you really do need to go and be reconciled to, some bitterness, some lack of forgiveness, or something you, some, someone has against you, you may need to not partake of the elements this time around. And instead, prayerfully determine in your heart, I'm going to do what I need to do to rid myself of this. Now, if, if there's some sin in your life that's really just between you and the Lord, I would invite you just to receive his mercy through Jesus, pray through it, and joyfully receive these, these elements. 
It's a small thing, it's a little cup, it's a little piece of bread. Uh, they're not magical in any way. But what realities they represent, they mean everything for us. Everything. You know, there's different traditions how to go about receiving the Lord's Supper. Um, some traditions is part of an actual meal, which I think is kind of a neat way to do it. Um, some traditions, people will come forward and, and kneel and, and uh, receive it from a, one loaf of bread and one cup, which I think is kind of nice because it, I think it better maybe symbolizes that we all receive from the one source our salvation. The way we do it is good. It's practically, it makes sense. You're seated there. We'll pass the trays to you. You don't have to get up. You don't have to go anywhere. Uh, it's individually portioned. It's a very practical, uh, kind of an American way to do it. And I, I think it's good. I think it's, there's nothing wrong with it. One danger in the way we do it is that it's very individualized. Uh, you're sort of sitting in your own sphere, and you have your own individual portions. And we can forget one of the central folk aims of this is the unity that we share receiving this through Christ. So just bear that in mind. Um, even though it's individual portions, spiritually it's one Savior, it's one Lord, one hope in Jesus Christ that we all share together.